So you're it's a, you're in a pain avoidance business, and so you know I think understanding that component is a really important thing for an operator um, because otherwise they're like we're the best, and like that may or may not resonate with people because they may just want like like that's cool and all. I don't care about your water fountain. I just want to make sure mom doesn't fall. I want to make sure mom gets good nutrition. I want to make sure so you need to have a product that can be different things to different people or you need to be so non-niche that you appeal to everyone and ultimately i don't know that that's a winning proposition in the current supply demand metric this is the passive wealth strategy show the show that will help you escape the wall street casino and build wealth on main street by investing in real estate i'm your host taylor load and today our guest is low hornbuckle and today we're talking about vetting sponsors in the residential assisted living and memory care space specifically. Lowe is an expert on residential assisted living. If you don't know what that is, don't have a specific idea in your mind, don't worry, we're gonna define that for you. But residential assisted living at a broad level, maybe think about retirement homes if you're not familiar. We're gonna refine that a bit more in the interview. But one of my concerns about this space and one of the reasons I don't invest in this space personally, because I don't have a strong framework for vetting the sponsors, at least until now, in terms of how well they're going to take care of their residents. That's number one. I believe it's incumbent upon the investors and the sponsors to put the residents first. And today, Lowe is going to teach us how to find sponsors who will do that, how to find sponsors who will make sure they're taking care of their residents and also minding that, you know, we're looking to make a profit on this investment, but Number one, we're focusing on providing quality care to the residents. We're going to talk about that. We're going to learn about how to find the folks who are taking care of the residents in residential assisted living. Big concern. And if you're interested in getting into the space, this will be a great interview for you to listen to. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Low Hornbuckle, and we're digging into residential assisted living and how to vet sponsors to make sure that they're taking care of the residents properly, to know that we're investing in an ethical business, essentially. Without any further ado, here we go. Thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background and what you do in residential assisted living, could you tell us about what you do and your business, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us on the show or having me on the show. And, you know, so primarily involved in assisted living and memory care facilities, sort of vertically integrated. So we kind of do all steps of the process for the most part. So we raise capital for projects, we design projects, we develop projects, and we sometimes in-house build projects or or partner with builders. So basically we have a very specific type of assisted living and memory care that we build. So the brand that's the operations company is Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. We have a few of those across the country. And then our capital raising company is Goodhorn Capital. So it's where people invest in Sage Oak projects. 
And then Go to Earn Capital also will occasionally invest in non Sage Oak projects, being either you know apartments or you know self storage or you know, land development, whatever the case may be. So things that we think are likely to be recession resistant, we'll raise money for projects. But for the most part, we raise money for projects that that uh, Sage Oak operates. Awesome, awesome. So. Today, I'd like to dig into vetting operators in residential assisted living in particular, not just vetting you know, syndication operators more broadly. But before we do that, maybe for our listeners who don't have a framework in their minds of what residential assisted living is and the way you practice it and, and memory care, can you just give us like a rundown of the types of properties that you're involved with? Yeah. So great question. And I think it's important. So I think really the best way I can kind of describe it is there's a conversation in the industry between healthcare and hospitality. And I think that's those two words mean something to the broader audience, right? When I say hospitality, you think hotel. When I say healthcare, you think probably hospital, doctor's office. That works out nicely. So on the very far end of the spectrum in hospitality, you have active adult, right? So this is, you know, age-restricted communities. They're essentially apartments for people that are either 55 and up or 62 and up. Think golf courses, tennis courts, you know, high rises that are designed to cater toward folks that are a little older, right? On the very other end of the spectrum, healthcare, you have nursing homes, not really called that anymore. They're called skilled nursing facilities or SNFs. And then kind of in the middle of those two is assisted living and memory care. And depending upon where you practice, you can kind of be on either end of the spectrum closer to hospitality or healthcare. We're probably a little closer to the healthcare side than on the hospitality side in our particular business. But assisted living and memory care in the middle of those. Assisted living, unlike independent living, independent living, there's no care. Assisted living means someone needs help with their activities of daily living. These are things like grooming, medication management, meals, things of that nature. Memory care is a usually in most states is a derivation of assisted living. It's a sub-license in which you're taking care of someone that has a cognitive impairment that impacts their ability to form new memories, impulse control, things of that nature. So it's really kind of a mental health component of assisted living. And so that's kind of where we're positioned. The residential assisted living side, we've kind of kind of moved out of that business. So we kind of consider ourselves boutique assisted living, boutique memory care. So we're building 16 bed communities. These are purpose-built houses. They're often on commercial pieces of land. So now the R of the residential assisted living starts to fall away. I think, you know, obviously our late great friend, Gene Garino, who kind of started to kind of help coin the term residential assisted living. What I gleaned from that was smaller is better, right? So smaller facilities offer some advantages. And so we purpose build small facilities, often in commercial pieces of land. So now we're commercial, you know, small, which now I guess the name would be instead of RAL would be like C small or something. So it would be a terrible acronym. <laughs> we basically focus on boutique. So smaller is better, more personal, more intimate easier to deliver food, easier to communicate, just just a boutique experience. I think everybody sort of inherently understands. If I say I stayed at a hotel or I stayed at a boutique hotel, that conjures a certain imagery. I mean, I think that's kind of where we position ourselves in the assisted living and memory care space. It's a boutique experience. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for giving us that rundown. So sure. as we have this discussion today around vetting sponsors, I see kind of two sides of this thing or two two kind of buckets that we can we can talk about. I'm sure we'll address both of them. One bucket being how is the operator, how is the sponsor as a steward of investor capital? Very important. On the other hand, and I would say that in my estimation, this is the more important bucket, is how are they 
as a steward of the residents who are who are in the care. This is not the same as an apartment complex where, yeah, we don't want to be slumlords, but our tenants take care of themselves. We're not responsible sure. for their well-being. There's that not that healthcare component there. So maybe we start first with the how do they handle investor capital, that that kind of side of the equation. Then we'll move on to the caring for residents aspect. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I'm going to say something on your show that probably no one else ever has the guts Uh-oh. to say. This is exciting. I just got done having to do a capital call on an assisted living facility. Wow. So most people won't talk about that, right? So mm-hmm. we were really transparent. You know, I, we kind of made a deal. We weren't really going to talk about COVID on the show because every assisted living operator is tired of that. But when COVID happened, and you can obviously attest to this because we're friends, I was one of the first people to say, hey, we're suspending distributions. A lot of people did, but they didn't say it, right? So, so I think the first thing, I think the two things are interrelated. So big part of my personal mission, I don't know that this necessarily represents the company, but as the operating partner of the company, it's probably to some degree one and the same. You know, I want to be a good steward of capitalism and ultimately capitalism should make people a good operator, right? Competition and looking for efficiency should make people a good operator. But there's also an element of capitalism that has a brutality to it that may not have a place in healthcare. So the, the right, like America has a sort of blended system of socialist and capitalist medicine. We don't have very good outcomes compared to other countries. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. So what I would say is if you focus on being a good steward of the residents and the families, the money should follow if you're in the right marketplaces, right? So there are markets where at $2,000 bed assisted living, there's markets where you get $12,000 bed assisted right. living in the same marketplace. So- you don't see quite the, that kind of spread in apartments. And if you do, it's often a derivation of amenities, right? Right. Like locations, high rises versus, you know, garden style, suburban, urban. You can often have places where the amenities are no different, but that the number of nurses, the number of staff, the number of things provided, the activities coordinator, the, the programming for the residents, whether it be memory care or assisted living is really the fundamental difference. So I actually don't think the two questions are different. I think that investors should approach it that way. So for example, when we suspended distributions during COVID, we went to all our investors and said, look, you know, we have the money to make distributions, but we want to save these resources so we can try to keep everyone safe. All of our investors said, you know, without a question, save the resources, keep everybody safe. So I think to your point, I think a lot of times the avatar, the person who's investing in assisted living or memory care usually has a personal reason for doing so. I think the people that there's been a lot of equity funds and different people get into the business. A lot of them have gotten annihilated. It's been sort of hilarious to watch, you know, the JP Morgans just get just get routed. And uh, <laughs> you know, so and I don't know if it's actually JP Morgan, so please don't send me JP Morgan. I'm merely <laughs> saying that the big players come into this and they try to run it like a business, but it's really a people business and you have to care about people. And if you care about people, then, you know, ultimately the outcome should follow because ultimately everything that you do is a cost input. And so every service you provide, as long as you can sell those services to your clients, they should then pay for that cost input, right? So if you you know, go to a community and you add additional staff to reduce falls and to improve food and do those things, you should be able to charge more rent for those things. So it's very much a service business with a real estate component. And so obviously, if you think about all the various service businesses out there, you can charge, there's a big range of what you could pay, right? You could go buy furniture from Walmart, and then you could have someone make it for you and they could make the same piece of furniture, but you might pay 50 times as much for this custom piece of furniture that looks very similar because of the quality and the craftsmanship and things of that nature. So service businesses fundamentally 
are all about taking cost inputs and then creating pricing outputs, right? So I think the first thing you got to do is make sure the person's in it for the right reasons. Because if you think about it, right, what does a big company do when they want to improve their stock prices? They just lay people off, right? That's kind of the model, right? Yeah. Insured capital, right? So you come in, you, you take on a bunch of debt, right? And then you lay a bunch of people off and you move the stock price. But if you lay off workers in assisted living and memory care, you're probably going to create bad outcomes for the people living there. So that that cut, cut, cut model is not really conducive. So I think the person that's in this business needs to be service-minded and figure out a way to, and you can, it's great to look for efficiencies. Absolutely is important to do so. But I think you really need to be focused on creating great outcomes. And when you focus on creating great outcomes, the profits should follow. If they don't, then either your building's obsolete or you chose the wrong marketplace or whatever the case may be. But probably the most expensive assisted living in the country, probably in like Manhattan, might be 30000 a bed, right? Whoa. So just imagine, you know, you know, you might like in Arkansas, you might be able to find a private play place for 2000 a bed and then Manhattan might be... 30,000 a bed. So you don't necessarily see sometimes those 15 X's in, in many other service businesses, but in this business, it's it's possible. Wow. That is really something. So vetting, vetting them or, or looking at the spots are in the sense of, do they lead with a lead with their service foot forward? I suppose if I'm, if I'm kind of trying to sum it up, right, is how do they even talk about the business? But to me, to my mind, so I've never invested in one of these facilities. I've just gotten a lot of education about residential assisted living. But to me, that that almost doesn't feel like enough. I would feel kind of compelled to like go to one of their facilities and just see because I feel that it then becomes like incumbent upon me to take that extra step of due diligence. Maybe I'm just being a little ridiculous, but I don't no. know what you think about that. Well, no, I don't think so at all. And you know, I think one of the reasons why conversations around investing in different asset classes can sometimes be, and no offense to the podcast, let me finish. I think it can be sometimes a little bit boring because we don't talk about it in meaningful ways, which is to say we're always focused on the numbers and we're always focused on these things. But the truth is there's things that there are plenty of people that wouldn't invest in in coal or fossil fuels. There's plenty of people that wouldn't invest in tobacco. There's plenty of people that wouldn't invest in, you know, arming child soldiers in Africa, but you know, someone does it because that's weapon. There's, there's arms dealers, True. right? Those exist. Yeah. So if there's things that people won't invest in because it sort of doesn't check off the moral boxes, then I think the thing we have to do is we got to flip it on its head and say, well, what if you... So you know, I kind of learned this lesson really at a, a gentleman that sat across the table from me. He was actually in one of my facilities doing the due diligence that you'd mentioned. And he said, look, you know, if I invest in an oil deal and they, they find a dry hole, it makes me mad because you know we failed. But he's like, if, if I invest in you and you lose my money trying to improve the quality of senior housing in a community... You know, I don't want you to lose the money, but I would feel different about that. And so yeah. I think that's a really important thing for us to tap into, right? So you mentioned like, I don't want to be a slumlord. Well, there are people that are very comfortable being a slumlord, right? And then there are people that are very comfortable, you know, leasing out places for $400 a month and dealing with what that comes with. Um, everything in society that that has to be done or gets done, someone's doing it, Right. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I think getting in touch with your values as an investor, your values as a person, I think that's really important because if, you're, if your only goal is the pursuit of money, then you would arm child soldiers. <laughs> and if your only goal is, right, I mean, that's true, right? So 
because that's very profitable. It's empowering children, right? You know, I mean, we can take it to, <laughs> you know, that's what someone tell themselves every day. Yeah, probably. And so ultimately there are people that invest in tobacco and, and there were pharmaceutical companies that, you know, pumped opioids into communities that maybe didn't need them, right? They were very profitable. If you bought stock in Purdue, you probably did very well, but, you know, West Virginia has a bone to pick with you. So, I mean, I think ultimately people do need to get in touch with, you know, their particular beliefs and morals around money because we all have them. But a lot of times from my perspective, and I, I used to not do this either. So it's something I've kind of learned in this business that, you know, ultimately, like if my investors are like, hey, cut staff, we don't care about falls. That's a bad investor for me. Yeah. And so, you know, pairing the investment vehicle, the investor, the sponsor of that investment, pairing those things together is really important in this space. Whereas in multifamily, to your point, you may be able to switch out the sponsor on a couple of deals and, and it would look kind of the same, right? They're going to put the gazebo in, they're going to paint the outside, they're going to throw in some granite, raise rents $200 and sell it to somebody else. So, and, and that's not knocking that. I, I invest in apartments often. But it doesn't touch my heart. It doesn't make me feel like a good person. It doesn't make me feel like it doesn't make me really feel anything. But what I do for a living, which is help people with, you know, disabilities and, and needs and mobility impairment, and I give families their life back, that makes me feel good. And so, you know, I, you know, if anything, you know, I was kind of having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, a nurse in a hospital, and I said, you know, people always talk about healthcare, but I kind of think it's essentially at its core, because if you look at the average healthcare worker, they're not really all that healthy, right? And yeah. so right, they're working long hours, they're they're cramming food down their mouth, you know, on a break, they're not drinking enough water, they may not have time to exercise, they're stressed. A lot, a lot of them, you know, like go home and have a couple cocktails to pull off some steam. They're basically transferring their life force from themselves to help other people. And so I think a lot of people in healthcare in that in that cycle. And so um, it's very noble work and it's very important work, but at the same time, there's a heavy price to be paid by the people that do it. You know, 12 hours on your feet, taking care of somebody with dementia, that's a hard way to earn a living. And so they don't do it because they earn a living, they do it because they think it's important, important work. And so I think that very mentality that a caregiver's heart, and there's lots of different ways to be a caregiver, but a caregiver's heart, that's a really important thing for an operator to have, right? That they put humans above profit. And ultimately, if you do that enough and you're not, you know, there are certainly people that, that never make a profit because they just give it all away and that's okay. But you want someone that sort of believes in capitalism, but also believes that capitalism has limitations and flaws and there needs to be curves in the road. And so that's why you have state licensure and that's why you have, you know, certain rules and regulations you have to follow because oftentimes capitalism doesn't do that on its own, right? Sometimes we're like, hey, we need to go mining. Kids are really small they fit in minds really well. And we're like, let's, let's ban that. Right. So we, we always, we always go fall into these dogmatic capitalism, socialism, and we get in these arguments with people. And at the end of the day, I, I think the vast, vast majority of everyone is pretty moderate. And there are things that they know that the market can't solve. And there are things they know that the market is very efficient and elegant at compared to a central planner or a government. And so I think most people have that perspective. And so you know, on the one hand, pure markets, you have small children in mines and arming child soldiers. And on the other hand, you have kind of state controlled you know, economies. 
can we just agree they're both bad and that <laughs> we need a blend of of we need a we need to blend of both and so I think that's a really important mentality for an operator to have because ultimately if you're in for profit healthcare if you're just chasing the profit you'll eventually go out of business you'll yeah. eventually it'll catch up to you and if you're just if you never consider profit and you only consider people you'll probably go out of business and so I think our good friend Gene said it the best right it's a three-legged stool you have your residents you have your staff and you have your business if any one of those legs fails the business fails the whole thing fails right if you don't have staff you can't function you have residents not making any revenue and if you don't have if the business isn't profitable you don't stay open and so i think you have to balance your team your residents and your families and your business and so it is a very delicate balancing act at times and you know, we saw that in covid there were a lot of facilities were like yeah we're just not going to buy ppe it's fine yeah. and so like right that's it's expensive right uh-huh. so oh these masks are five dollars we shouldn't buy these and so you know, you, you have to kind of straddle that line. So I think that's a really important consideration for your audience is just kind of understanding what people's philosophies are. Do they seem like they're money first or are they people first? Because being one or the other, just like solely and not considering both, it can be really troublesome. And you can also find a person that's like so protecting of their staff, they harm the residents or so protecting of the residents, they harm the staff, right? Like what happens if someone punches a staff member? Do they stay? Do they go? Right? Kind of depends on the situation. So there are all kinds of intricate, complicated decisions that kind of happen every day with an assistive living and memory care operator that experienced people um, have in space because they've seen, you know, kind of like they've seen it all. And so, you know, I think that's a big part of it is their experience. And, and I think to your point, visiting a facility is probably pretty good bare minimum to kind of say, hey, show me, you know, what your facility sounds like and feels like. And a lot of our investors have done that. We even had investors who came for, to us as families and then saw our care and then invested. So I think visiting a facility is a, is a fine um, is a fine place to start. Okay, good, good. Glad to hear that. So, okay, so with that in mind, we're first assuming that if we're looking at a, a sponsor, a deal, whatever, we're considering investing in, in residential assisted living or assisted living of some kind. First step being look at their ethics and, and dig into that aspect, but we also need to be mindful of the numbers. If if we're in this to make some kind of a profit and not just invest in a nonprofit, because that's not the sure. conversation we're having. So, yep. okay, f- let's assume we are looking at a sponsor and we're confident, okay, this person, this team checks all my boxes from an ethical standpoint. I think they're going to make the right calls, but I do want to kind of try to make some money off of this if possible. How do I verify that they're not pie in the sky, head in the clouds, out to lunch as far as the numbers go of the deal? Yeah, great question. So, so the first thing is, I think the biggest red flag for me, and it's pervasive. They only talk about demand. So, demand in abstract is a useless data point. It's demand in relation to supply, right? So, when they start quoting how many people are turning eighty-five a day, ten, you know, three thousand, seven thousand, whatever the number is, ten thousand turn sixty-five. When they're focused on the demand. That's a big red flag. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that they have a good understanding of supply demand ratios for the market that they're in. Because, you know, everyone tells this huge demand story, like they forget about, well, what if everyone else is reading the same (laughs) Wall Street Journal article that you are, or they're all believing whatever Harvey, uh, Harry Dent, excuse me, wrote, you know, the demographic book that kind of inspired a lot of people to get in this business. Well, I mean, a lot of people built assisted living facilities, right? 
So that's the first thing is look at, you know, that they understand supply demand is an underserved market, right? Do they have market research to indicate that the market is at, you know, near 100% occupancy or 95% or 96%? So that's, that's really important. The second thing for me is I would like them to be operationally unique. So what's their unique selling proposition? If they have none, it scares me. Because, and there's lots of different ways you can be unique. Sometimes it could be your buildings in a cool location overlooking a really pretty river or a really pretty lake. You know, you could be unique in that your floor plan is designed well to reduce falls. You could be unique in that you have an amazing team. You could have a great modality of care. You could have, you know, all kinds of ways to be unique. But a, a lot of companies kind of go in and they try to make their house or their facility to the standards of the market. Well, the problem is, is that sometimes when markets change, you really would like to be built to get your unfair share of market share. And so historically, the funny thing was, got my teeth in the business in Dallas. Dallas is always in the top five overbuilt assisted living and memory care facilities, if you're listing them out based on supply and demand. We always ran about 10 points. It dipped a little bit in COVID, but I would say whole time we've been open, our probably averages, we've been about 10 points above the Dallas average because we were unique. Right. So the market was trying to give us 80%. We were at 90. The market was trying to give us 83%. We were at 93%. And so, you know, being a unique selling proposition is such an important thing. And I think it's really important in a lot of businesses. And I think a lot of real estate investors forget that. Right. And, and at its core, the fundamental reason why real estate is interesting is that there's no two pieces of property that are exactly the same. So by definition, real estate is unique. However, uh, you know, being able to articulate that. And knowing that the market cares about your uniqueness, right? Because there's two houses that are side by side. Even if they're just houses, they're unique, but they're exactly the same house. They may not seem or feel unique, right? Even though one has a slightly different view of the degree or two. So I think making sure the operator has a unique proposition, making sure the operator, if you ask you know, the operator what their biggest fear is, what their biggest challenge is, if their answer isn't staffing, staffing, and staffing, um, that, should, that should be very scary. I think assisted living and memory care is a human resource business and it's a human resource business that has a real estate component. So I always kind of tell people it's like a rule of thumb. If you have a thousand, you're in the apartment business. If you have a thousand apartments, how many employees are you going to have? 40, 25, roughly. You get a thousand beds in assisted living, you're going to have at least 500 and you might have 750. So sometimes this is close to -to one-to-one. And so, you know, now all of a sudden you're in a different class of business, you're in, you're offering insurance. I mean, you, you're in a whole different, different category business and, and you, everybody talks about, well, I'm the job creator. Well, no, I mean, assisted living memory care facilities actually are job creators, right? So um, they create a lot of, a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity and a lot of people, you know, support their families and a lot of people, you know, fill their cup and, and fulfill themselves spiritually by being in the healthcare business, by helping people. So, you're creating a place where people are providing a very valuable service to people. And so it's a very, so people that don't understand the human resource side, there's a lot of people that uh, understand, like you see like uh, like a nurse or a, actually the funny story, the biggest losses I ever see in assisted living are always doctors, always. And it's because they think about it like a medical thing, but it's not really. I mean, you know, if you were to go survey a hundred nurses and ask them, to rate themselves on a scale of one to 10 with their knowledge of dementia, smart one would ask you, do you mean the disease progression or how to manage someone with it? Mm-hmm. Because 
One is a medical clinical question. The other is a basically a psychological question, which is that, you know, if I know what stages of dementia you have, that doesn't mean I know how to redirect you. It doesn't mean I know your history and know how to talk to you. It doesn't mean I don't, I know what triggers you or what doesn't trigger you. It doesn't mean that I have any tools in my toolbox to, you know, get you away from the door or to get you to stop asking a repetitive question or to get you to stop obsessing about something, right? So the disease progression is a clinical question, but managing the families and the guilt and denial associated with their process and managing the resident who I always tell people really simply, if you as a cognitively aware person are, are arguing with a person with dementia, there's only one crazy person in that story. <laughs> so, right. So like, you just kind of have to understand. So people need to have a good understanding of, you know, so you can ask some questions about, you know, how to redirect someone with dementia. If they, they don't know that, they probably don't understand dementia. Dementia is such a, such a integral part of that process. And if they don't have a good understanding of what families go through, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're in the pain business, meaning someone has had something really horrible happen and they're trying to avoid pain again in the future, right? It's not all unicorns and rainbows. It's mom had a fall. Let's prevent that, right? So you're it's a, you're in a pain avoidance business. And so, you know, I think understanding that component is a really important thing for an operator um, because otherwise they're like, we're the best. And like that may or may not resonate with people because they may just want like, like that's cool and all. I don't care about your water fountain. I just want to make sure mom doesn't fall. I want to make sure mom gets good nutrition. I want to make sure. So you need to have a product that can be different things to different people, or you need to be so non-niche that you appeal to everyone. And ultimately, I don't know that that's a winning proposition in the current supply demand metric. And I think probably the last piece of the puzzle, listen for the phrase baby boomer. If they say that phrase, if they're in an independent living, fine. If they're in assistive living or memory care, run because they don't understand demographics because the baby boomers, the oldest one would be born in 1946. Well, it's 2022. I don't know when the show is going to be released, but that means the oldest baby boomer is 76. Average age in assisted living, 87. Mm -hmm. So the baby boomers have not even made it to interfacing with this product class and will not do so on average for 11 years. Now they're obviously baby boomers in assisted living and memory care. I've actually had a resident as young as 33 and a house with someone that was 105. So it happens. But in terms of the raw numbers, assisted living and memory care is not catering to baby boomers at this stage of the game on average. They're catering to their parents. And so baby boomers are making the decisions in large part when they're, when they're the families, but they're not really actually the customers yet. And so a lot of these people that going back to the original point of focusing on demand only, they, they're baby boomer, baby boomer, baby boomer, but they don't actually know business if they're talking about baby boomers because that's a wave that's coming. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of the, the private equity firms got wiped out was because there's actually, we're just coming out of it. I haven't seen the numbers post-COVID, but we're actually in a demographic trough where the residents in assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing were dying faster than they were being replaced. And the demographic data said we were going to have about a two to five year trough in which occupancies fell. And so that was actually very clearly available in the data, but a lot of people fell prey to looking at, hey, it's you know 2015, here's where we're going to be in 2030. Well, there's a lot that happens in between there. And so we actually went through a demographic trough and we're probably just now coming out of that trough, which is where the number of aggregate folks could actually fill assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing if they wanted to move into the product. And so I think that's where a lot of mistakes happen was, again, just demand, 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 demand. 
not understanding the nuance of demand and then also not understanding the nuance of you know what supplies coming online and who are you going to be competing against and so if you're not unique you might be competing against people that are exactly the same as you <laughs> now you're in price competition if you're unique you can kind of write your own ticket Interesting. Well, there's so much there and it's a big topic. And I think there continue to be people interested in investing in the space. And despite the current lull in demand, it will come rushing back here a little bit down the road. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Lo, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before. You've answered those questions. I got three new ones for you as a returning guest. Are you ready to go? Absolutely. Great. First one, what is your favorite book, whether business or kind of personal enjoyment? Okay. So it's actually sentimental and I'm not a very sentimental guy, but I was, I was, I'm a third generation holder of a book called How to Survive in the Woods. And it's this really cool green book with this neon orange letters, like almost like Hunter Orange. And so I have this book at my sort of rural land and it's a really cool book and uh, I keep it around and, and I hope that if I ever get stranded, I have it in my backpack <laughs> and so I can learn how to skin a rabbit because I have no idea how to do that otherwise. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool book and uh, it was given to me by my father, it was given to him by his father. So it's kind of a cool kind of family or it's probably like a six year, seven year old book. So that's kind of a cool book. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So we have the first question, now we move on to number two. What is that tool, software, system, piece of technology, something in your business that you just could not possibly live without? Well, there's two things and they're interrelated. So my regional director of operations, who's kind of on track to be our COO, he is a Gallup's, Gallup Strengths Finder coach. And so we are big proponents of the HR side of our business of getting data on employees. And so we are a company that manages people's strengths. And so in order to manage strengths, we know them. So Gallup, StrengthsFinder, you know, all of our members of management, important employees, we give them a StrengthsFinder test. And then I have a person on my team who's a certified coach at great expense to be able to interpret that data and then figure out where gaps in communication exist on various team members and, and where they can add value to each other and, and, and blind spots they may have against each other. Awesome. Very cool. Number three, where is somewhere that you're excited to go in 2023? You know, I hope I'm lucky enough to go to Europe in 2023. I think Europe is the the center of the universe right now. I don't usually think that, but I think uh, everything going on there with it being, a, you know, you had Brexit and you had, you know, the Ukraine and you have energy prices. So I think Europe is going to be a really different place in the next 10 or 15 years. And so I'd like to see it before it changes too much so that I can have a sense of perspective. So I think Europe would be be nice to spend a little time just kind of bouncing around and just sort of taking in the European experience. Awesome. Well, love traveling to Europe myself. And well, I've loved this conversation. I want to thank you for joining us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. So generally speaking, I think uh, there's probably two ways people may interface with us. If you want to learn about us from an assisted living and memory care perspective as a customer, client, family, 
just go to sageoakcompanies.com. You can then navigate to the various facilities that we have. But if you're interested on the investing side, you can go to goodhorncapital.com. So good, like the word that stands for positive, opposite of bad, horn, hornbuckle, goodhorncapital.com. You can download a copy of our, of our book, The Sage Oak Story, and you can jump on our potential investor list if that's something that's interesting to you. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.